Um, if you don't already, I would invite you to have Joel 2 out open in front of you, whether it's on a phone or you're using a Bible here in the pew or a Bible you brought with you. I find it so helpful. Um, since we're going to be just doing one message in Joel, I might bounce around a little bit, so you might want to be able to flick around. But it is a short book, which is really good. Um, as we begin, please join me in praying. Uh, Lord, I want to thank you so much for this time of worship we have already had. Um, it is amazing to sing these songs with people who have gone through so much over the past few years, and yet still we, see, we are seeking you. We experience our love and hope in you, and that does not mean that we are not weary, but Lord, you use these times, these mornings, to remind us of what matters most. And so I pray that, Lord, you would confirm what is good, you would challenge what is not, and you would allow us to step more and more in your grace this morning. Thank you for this word that comes from a long time ago, and I just pray, Lord, you would lead us by your spirit into it, that you would speak and guide how we are to understand this this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. And God's people said, amen. So I'd like to start off this morning by acknowledging one thing, that I'm, I'm an iPhone person. This is not a challenge to anyone who's not an iPhone person. If we go around the room, some people are iPhone people or not. This is not what this is about. But as an iPhone person, I decided at some point in time I didn't like the iTunes music experience. I did not like it. So what I did is I became a Spotify listener, which is also totally fine if you're not a Spotify listener, but I became a Spotify listener. And so that's how I listen to music. That's my go-to for podcasts. That's my go-to for listening to worship. But I have this weird thing that happens with my phone. So we have a car like many of you where it's like a, it has a built-in Bluetooth speaker. And so if I don't tell my phone what music to play, then it just defaults to iTunes for whatever reason. Now, I just told you I don't use iTunes. So what do you think comes up when, I, when it defaults to iTunes? What it defaults to is what I had on my iTunes 20 years ago, which is a very interesting experience. You think about what was I listening to for 20 years ago? back when streaming wasn't really a thing. And so the choices for what are my, on, in my iTunes library are very interesting, to say the least. All of a sudden, I can hear, if I turn on my car and walk away, I can just hear jamming out at some really poppy Christian song that I've never heard of for the longest time. I have heard of it, but it's been a very long time. Or, and this is the weird one, at some point I used to do, I used to do musical theater, and I, at some point, was working on putting together a piece, a Godspell piece, if you know what Godspell is, which I imagine some of you do. I don't expect everyone. But it's like hippies, Jesus music, and, and musical theater. That's what it is. That's what it is. And all of a sudden, I can hear this ringing in my car. It's like, I am not listening to that today. So it, what happens is, is that this music is stored in my phone. It's programmed in. I, and I, don't, I may have just forgotten that I had it on there at some point in time. But isn't it interesting that all this time it's been there, and then it just shows itself to be there? Like, I didn't have control over what that song came on or not, because it just defaulted to it. It chose it. It seems very random. But isn't it interesting that even if you're not entirely aware of the things that are there, the more something triggers it sometimes, where all of a sudden, wow, I had no idea that was there. Like Godspell. I had no idea Godspell would be playing in my car. I'm going to change that really quickly. Um, so I say all that because I look back at these stretch of weeks 
I look at last week, this week, next week, and they are a significant time if you think about what we've all gone through as a world, society, church, personally. I think last week, last Saturday, over a week ago, was two years when I arrived in Canada. Two years after arriving in Canada, I, we have pictures to help me remember this, but it's just so visceral. This old, boots on the ground, here, here we go, here we are at Edmonton with Bethel. I remember this so viscerally. And then I think of this week, where this Sunday, two years ago, I preached my first sermon with Bethel as part of, your, as be, as part of being your pastor. I preached my first sermon two, weeks, two years ago from the state. And then I look at what transpired this following week, two years ago, and it is when we begin to see the, the, the breaking down of societies and structures, our network system globally over the pandemic, that everything started to break through, and it culminated to ne- next weekend, which was this pitch of, I mean, really kind of Holy Spirit things that came into place for my life that allowed things to take in place before everything really shut down the following week. But we're in it, and I don't know if you feel it or not, but there's a weightiness that comes to this. I don't know if you experience this. There's a weightiness, there's a grief and lament in my heart when I think back to, wow, this is, this is, this is two years ago. This is a hard road to think about this, that all this is happening. And it's also interesting that it connects so well with Lent for me. Because, you know, we had this Ash Wednesday evening service on Wednesday, and one of the things that's a practice that's often in Ash Wednesday service is you come to receive ashes, which is in every way admitting and confessing your frailty before God, similar to how Ashley was praying, your frailty before God, that I am not enough, but God is, and that Christ died that I might have new life, but I am feeling the ashes. Two years ago, I feel the ashes. And what we say in the in services, what we said on Wednesday was, as you receive the mark of the cross on your forehead, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Repent and believe the gospel. Nothing like the two years has made me feel more frail than it has. Nothing. I can't imagine you experiencing that any other way. The frailty and humble, humility moving towards humiliation of like, this is devastating. But also what I've found is that I am far more clear in my life about what actually brings hope. I am far more clear. I rely so much less on the things that don't actually provide hope, don't actually provide comfort. I am clearer about that from my heart and my life. And so this morning, what I've chosen to reflect, for us to reflect on this morning is Joel 2, which Joel is, stands with all the different prophets in the Old Testament, and it is a strange book. <laughs> It's a strange book filled with lots of apocalyptic language. There's worship, liturgical language. It's talking about this, this, this coming undone of the world, and I think it speaks powerfully to where, how we are today. Powerfully. It's Hebrew poetry, so it requires you to get your mind in it, to understand it a little bit, but it speaks wonderfully. And I want to explain how I think this fits for us so well. Joel 2 the situation is dire here, just like we've experienced direness, whether it was two years ago or if it's right now when you think about the world going on to the rest of the world. The, one of the first things you always want to ask when you look at a book of the Bible is, when was this written? What was going on in this world? Because you might have a nice study Bible, but like, for example, I'm preaching here with a normal Bible. I don't have like introductory notes that tell me, oh, this is what's going on with the book. 
And sometimes that's because scholars have lots of different ideas about different settings of different books. But this book most likely happened, was written during a time after Israel had come back to the land, uh, post-exiles. So God, the Old Testament has this whole story woven woven into it that takes some learning, but they are basically given the land and then taken away from the land because they disobeyed. And then eventually they go back to the land. And this time of being back in the land of rebuilding is especially challenging. And there are a lot of things that take place that require them to come back to the Lord, to return to the Lord. Joel is, uh, is with many of the different prophets. And one of the interesting things in this book, which I won't really go into detail with, is that he references so many of the other prophets, which means he is coming later in time with all the prophets. He knows what Isaiah said or what Amos said. He sits with them and he has that witness in his heart, in his mind. And the other thing about Joel is that some of the prophets are very specific about sins and about what areas that the people have been disobedient. Joel is not specific at all. There's something very interesting about this book is that he is not trying to be specific and hone in on this is the thing you've done that's led you astray or this is the thing that's doing that that's, you've done that's brought about judgment or brought about harm. No, he's not specific, which is interesting. We'll talk more about that. But he's not specific because what Joel does in this book is he takes on more the role of the mediator between God and the people. He stands in the gap and he says, I'm going to stand here with you, that I'm going to pray and invite you to different possibilities. So I sit here, we're in a new book that most people are not as familiar with. My challenge is I'm going to lose you. I don't want to lose anyone here. No one left behind. So uh, the reason I see Joel helping us, I'm going to give you three reasons that's going to guide what I say this morning. Okay, so three reasons. Joel, this prophetic witness in Joel, it helps us understand what is happening in the world. It helps us understand what is happening in the world. It also understands, helps us understand how we can and must respond to the world around us. And it helps us understand why that response is so essential. Helps us understand what is going on in the world, how we must respond, and why that is so essential. So I'm going to use that. If you're looking for a framework of what everything I'm talking about this morning, that's it. First up, what is happening in the world? Well, Joel, I mentioned that the situation is dire, and I'll explain why, because it's creation coming undone. This whole time, this, this whole book is coming after there's been some devastating things happened amongst the people of God, and Joel has some real sources of distress. This might sound familiar to, to you in your world. The first of which is locusts. So Joel is a book that is in the midst of a plague of locusts coming to the people of God. You can look in the first chapter and see this. It's Joel 1.4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Obviously, there's a lot of locusts. They're eating lots of things. They're eating everything. There's not really another, there's not a lot of food to go around. And it's resulted in a complete disruption of the life of the people of God. Their life has been disrupted. Their patterns, their harvest, economic systems, family, society, disrupted. And what's interesting in 2020, and I don't know if you know this, but there was devastating plagues of locusts in Africa. Had any of you heard of this before? devastating plagues. You can look at this pocket in East Africa of all these different nations, Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, Somalia, Eritrea, and they're ravaged by locusts in 2020. And it was the worst it's been in decades. The worst. There's definitely some pictures up here. The 
Part of it is that there's been unusual weather conditions putting this off, and they came back, and it completely darkens the sky. Those are those buggers. You see them? <laughs> I'm going to try to say the name. Sisisto Sursa Gregaria, those guys. They're, they're, they're devastating. I, I found this statistic I wanted to share with you. is like that these insects can multiply 20-fold in three months and reach densities of 80 million per square kilometer, and each can consume two grams, grams of vegetation every day. So combined with a swarm of 80 million, they can consume a food equivalent that could be eaten by 35,000 people a day. That amount of food that they consume and take away, it's ripped away. This is the kind of world Joel's living in. That's the world he's speaking to in a, in a community that has so far less resources and devastated by the plague of locusts that, that chapter 1 tells us about. But something interesting happens in chapter 2 because he continues talking about how the people are to respond to this devastation, locusts. But as he's describing locusts, it seems like he's describing something more. His language shifts a little bit, so it's not just locusts. He starts almost like he's try, trying to describe an, describe an army coming. It's an army coming. And you can see it in the second verse of chapter 2. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Think about the locusts darkening the sky. But like the dawn spreading across the mountains, a large, mighty army comes. So what also is happening in Joel, and this is what takes a little bit getting in the book a little bit, is that Joel is describing a past event, what already happened. Locusts came, but he's saying if the people stay where they are, if they, if they stay where their hearts are, more is going to come. It will come, and God will bring that plague. God will bring that army that will uproot and take away all that is good. There is an army coming. So we have this devastation that comes from locusts, a natural phenomenon that is devastating communities. We know nothing about that, right? And then even this, this prediction of an army coming, war taking place across our world, we know nothing about that, right? And then it also says in Joel 1, just for me to add a few more things to this list, it talks about drought. If you look in Joel 1.10, fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, new wine is dried up, olive oil fails, drying up. Joel 1.12, the vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate palm and apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. So there's been actual drought. Joel in this Hebrew poetic style is describing drought. Think about how devastating the heat was last year. And then we have this next movement, which is what he calls desolation in some way. This idea that the impact of the drought and the invasion and the locust, it all compounds to like scorched earth. Joel 2, 3. Before them, the fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. And before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. And then what it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? This language and term, day of Lord, I can't not explain it because it's so important for understanding the prophets. It is this idea that there is these events in the past that are pointers to a future time when God would bring confront, that when God would confront and bring justice to evil in the world. 
It is this way to understand what's happening through beginning, present, and future that is so essential. And that the reality is there are many days of the Lord that anticipate and help us for the future great day of the Lord. So the whole book is constructed this way. This is how I understand it. Some, that the chapter one is about a past event. A day of the Lord event that happened, locusts came. Chapter two is about a possible day of the Lord thing coming where a possible army would come and bring judgment and justice to God's people. And chapter three, which we will spend less time in, but it's talking about a future event, a reality of the day of the Lord coming into being that brings an end to suffering and renews all of creation. So we're in the middle of Joel chapter two, and I haven't spoken too much, but there's already so much here, and I, I hope you see that. I look at how much our world has been devastated by just these natural forces, and I just see creation coming undone. And it's not just nature and creation. It's people revolting against one another through evil and harm. And it is darkness attempting to take hold of what does not belong to us. And what I see in this book is God saying, enough is enough. This world is mine. It belongs to me. Stop running away, hiding. And there is this whole force that these forces, the army, it's basically God saying enough is enough. He's directing us to personally wake up and to give him the attention he deserves and for us to not act like we are God. So that is what is happening in the world. That's how Joel explains what is happening in the world because it's what's happening in his world and I see how it speaks to ours. The next is how. How can we? How must we respond? If that is what's happening in the world, how am I supposed to respond to that? Well, read verse 12 again with me that Kevin read for us earlier. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord. I want to make a couple comments about what is described here. You know, part of this is that the first thing is, even now declares the Lord that this call to return is in the name of God. It's in the name of Jesus. It's not, which means that the answer for how to respond is in God. It's in Yahweh. It's not in you or it's not in me. And also this term, rending, rend, rending of your heart in verse 13, that it's not really used anywhere else in the Bible, but it's describing where you've probably read in other places in Scripture where people, as acts of grief and lament, they rip their clothes. I think even today you can experience that they rip their clothes, and it's a sign of lament, grief, and sadness. The other thing that I want to just mention here, because I've tried to give you history to how to understand and receive the book, but what this assumes is this pre-existing relationship with God. This idea that, that Joel can say these words on behalf of God, saying, God is saying, even now return back to you. You can't return back to someone if you never were with them. So he's saying, no, this is the time to turn back to God, which means you had a relationship, you strayed away from the blessing of being with God. And now is the time for that to change. The next thing is that this kind of return, this, this rending of garments as it describes, it involves all of your heart, which means it's wholehearted. This is wholehearted repentance. 
I think of just how easily I, wa- I try to teach my children how to practice the language we like to use as, you know, just saying sorry. You know, we like to use the word make peace. Can you go make peace? It's far more active. It's not this idea of, oh, I'm just going to go say sorry. It's like, no, can you show love and care? Can you listen to the harm you caused other people? Can you, can, you, can you express a willingness, I'm going to do something about the pain I've caused? That's making peace. It goes way beyond just saying sorry. So it's wholehearted. And one of the things that's just obvious here to me is that he's saying that this is not just, don't just say it. It doesn't matter if you say it. It matters if it's here. It matters if it's happening in your hearts. Similar to a verse from 1 John that we, we listened to a few weeks ago, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. It's about how this is taking place in our hearts. And the repentance, this rending of hearts, when you actually go to this place and are feeling just low and down, you cannot hide your grief. You might as well be ripping your clothes. You can't hide how you feel if you truly are, the, contrite is the word, but lowly in the midst of everything that's happened. And I think, I was trying to think of an image, like, what does that look like? Because it's not saying that you should have public acts, but that if this happens in your heart, there's no way to contain it not happening outwardly. That's what it's saying. There's no way for you to keep this from happening outwardly. And for whatever reason, God reminded me of the ending of a romantic comedy, so I'll just take it for what it is. But I, it's a Hitch. Hitch is one of my favorite romantic comedies, just because I think Will Smith's amazing. But the very end, Will Smith is supposed to be this amazing guy. This amazing, like, love doctor. He can help anyone get a good relationship. And at the end, he's, like, learning the true lesson of humility because he basically just embarrasses himself at the end. There's a picture here of him, like, knocking on the door, and he is just, he's in a bad place. He's, like, he's, like, wanting to profess his love to this woman who he thinks is, like, leaving him, and he's, like, he just embarrasses himself. But what he's kind of practicing is wholehearted honesty, humility, confession. He's like, I've, I've, I've been in a bad place. I've not been honest. He's kind of doing confessing type things, and he completely embarrasses himself. That when we truly are genuine in our making peace, our humility and surrender, it doesn't look pretty. It doesn't look pretty for me when I really confess that to people, and I don't think it looks pretty for any of us, because it's not about the optics. It's about what's taking place in the heart. Even now, return to me with all your heart. The even now part, too, it, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's basically saying that this is pretty urgent. Now, now is the time to return, to, go, to turn back to God. It's saying it's not Joel's urgency, but it's God's. Now is the time. And the call to return and you can see this in verse 13, is it's all based on God's character. That's really important to see here. It's based on the character of God. Some of our other prayers we had, Isaiah 43 and Daniel 9 this morning, they all speak that kind of prayer, this kind of turn is only possible because of the character of God. And, and Joel gives word to this in verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. This is who God is. Slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. You know, Joel is sharing this, basically saying that this is only possible because God cares for you. If God did not care for you, this kind of invitation would not even be given. And he's not asking us to, to you know, can you just say sorry, and then we'll just kind of patch this up and move on. No, like, let's, let's move towards real change, real healing that takes place 
And then what he says in verse 14, who knows? He may, God may relent from leaving behind a blessing, grain offerings and a drink offering for the Lord your God. If I could just kind of explain how this rest of these few verses shifts. It shifts where Joel calls the people. This is kind of like worship liturgical language, but Joel calls all the people, and he calls them together towards prayer and fasting, similar to how we did on Wednesday, calling all the people. And you see kind of that language. You can hear that in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people and consecrate the assembly. He's basically saying, get the community involved. Let's, let's get involved together. Let, let's, let's, let's get the children together. Rally the pe- priests to intercede for the people. And then towards the very end of this section, there's a prayer that's offered. This is what we need to be praying. Have pity on your people, O eternal one. Do not let your legacy, your covenant people, be taunted and mocked by the nations who ask, where is their God? And so then... What takes place after this is like the result of intentional prayer and fasting. And for me, like that's where I think of Lent. This is this intentional journey with Jesus. How do I intentionally participate in this journey with Jesus? And how, what, what are practices and habits that I make part of my life as part of pursuing that? What is going on in the world? How must I respond? And why is that so essential? Why is it so essential? It is the only way to find joy and peace, to be united with God. There are many in the world and history that do not return to the Lord. Other prophets give words to that, give, give words to this. Amos definitely has this refrain, refrain. If you went and looked at, at Amos 4, you would see it. Amos 4 says, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord, again and again. Even after God sends plagues, after he sends army, after he sends devastations, the people don't return. They're not hearing God as, they're not hearing God's, this is enough. And so this book unfolds in light of repentance, the possibility of repentance, that Joel is prophesying what can be possible through repentance. And what you see in three, in the next, the latter part of chapter two and in chapter three is this removal of the threat. This is what the removal of the threat looks like. This is what it looks like when the land is healed when restoration and prosperity and blessings come. And it all points to, and this is why I talked about the day of the Lord, it points to this future day of the Lord where Jesus returns and where God brings an end to pain and suffering. I'm going to read a few verses because I'm bouncing around Joel, even though it's a short book. Joel 2.32, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, and this is towards the end of the book, Joel 3.16, the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. The Lord is calling us to that rescue. He's calling us to this rescue. I, that's why I, can look, I just love the way Scripture reveals and speaks throughout all times and all places because I look at our disrupted world and I think, wow, this is an invitation for us. This is an invitation for me. I think of how many questions I ask, the weariness in my heart, and I know, no, I, I don't need to be seeking answers from my own about ability or power. I don't need to be seeking it through other political powers. I need to be seeking it from God. That is the source of refuge and rescue. Because if I desire human flourishing for all people, restoration, fulfillment of my longings, my hopes, 
If I desire endless protection and peace for people as part of creation, if that can only be found in God. You know, I, the pandemic and all the things that happened within it, it's just this wake-up call. How much of what our lives are about, our rhythms about, actually about seeking Jesus? Or were they shaped and built upon patterns for convenience? Were they shaped upon things that brought us comfort? Or were they shaped towards the ends that we thought were important, but they're not necessarily what God says is most important? It's, it's this reassessment that I think a lot of us have done in some way, but we can't stop that process. Like, we must continue seeking that process if we want to fully embrace joy, fully embrace peace in God. Because what Joel says towards the end, 317, is then you will know that I, the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. I dwell there. You will meet me there. And so I think for me, how I want to apply Joel 2, start of Lent, is that we need to think about renewal. If we desire for things to be restored in our life, for refuge to come down, for wars to cease, renewal must begin with a return. It must begin with a return. A return that involves, as Joel 2 describes for us, a rending of the heart, which is true repentance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a really kind of powerful quote, and it is a quote that he said in response to the German, German political powers and society not wanting to combat against the Nazi regime. And this is the quote he says. It'll sound familiar, at least to what we're talking about this morning. If you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the other direction. If you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the other direction. In other words, he's saying, if you're on the wrong train, it's not going to work out. <laughs> this, isn't about the, this isn't about being an autopilot as much as it is about being in the right direction, seeking the God who actually is the source of refuge and rescue. And so even the image for me in my mind when I read that quote, as I'm thinking, okay, this train is going to just pure, utter darkness and evil. It doesn't matter if you're trying to run against the momentum of the train inside the inner aisle. That doesn't work. You're on the wrong train. So what does it look like to return to the right course of action, the vehicle to which God has called and invited his people to go? True repentance, this is what J.I. Packer says, true repentance only begins when one passes out of what the Bible sees as self-deception and what modern counselors call denial into what the Bible calls conviction of sin. It's a longer quote. True repentance only begins when one passes out of what the Bible calls self-deception and modern counselors call denial into what the Bible calls conviction of sin. And I, for me personally, I, I came into Ash Wednesday, a day of prayer and fasting, and to be honest, you know, I shouldn't be surprised if I set aside more time for prayer and fasting that I actually experienced the closeness of God. I shouldn't be surprised by that, my confession to you, but I did. I actually drew near to God. It's the promise of James 4. I drew near to God, and he drew near to me, and I, I believe he did this in the hearts of other people. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We're wondering, we're dealing with our weariness and struggle, and sometimes we tend to resolve that weariness and struggle on our own. But what does it look like to actually draw near to God? And not be in a place where I don't want to deceive myself, like that quote was talking about. I don't want to deceive myself. I don't want to live in denial. I want to deal honestly 
with the world and the people around me. I want to deal honestly with what God invites me to in his scripture, in his gospel. I want to deal honestly with it. I don't want to just put it off or not give it the right space because the more and more I do that, the more and more I hear Jesus calling. The more and more I see what is true. And so Jesus calls us at the beginning of his ministry. He says, the time has come. It's the beginning of Mark 1. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then even, I think, a much more sort of pressing, ooh, this is what following Jesus looks like, is John is Luke 9. Luke 9, when he says this, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must dis- deny themselves and follow me. So often we just want to follow God and not actually go through that process of denying ourselves. Whoever wants to save their life will will lose it, but whoever loses their life will save it. Jesus, and I even think I see this in Joel, it's a call not to just, it's a call of faith that's a call to a personal relationship with God. All this is built upon a relationship with God of knowing who God is, and a return means, God, what matters the most to you? Have you ever asked God that? Or did you find yourself just making decisions on what you thought, think is most important? What matters most to you, God? How do I arrange my life and my time around that? You know, repentance, repentant prayer, it's not just about compliance, but Joel 2 tells us it's about a rending of the heart. How do I go deeper in acknowledging the ways I'm just not living according to God. And it's only out of that place. That's just why it's so connected to peace and joy. It's only out of that place that healing begins to take place, that we actually experience relief and hope filling us and a refreshing and a renewal, because renewal begins with repentance. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, For me, praying about this passage and how to respond It just leads with this question that I would like to offer for you today. And it's this question of what does a return look like for you? What does a return look like for you? And I ask this because just like Joel, he doesn't presume he knows the exact specific sins that are taking place in every single person's heart, every single single community around the world, and nor do I. But we are compelled to ask, why, what, what is in the way of me following Jesus? What are the parts of me that are not really actually like Jesus as much as I would love for them to be? And how is this journey of Lent an invitation to you and to I to actually remove things in our lives that are distractions to help us to listen to God? And what are new practices we want to add? Things that we're like, you know, I'm really off in my habits. I actually want to pray every day and I don't. Or I actually want to at least read this book in some way, and I don't. And like that's a real loss when you think about it in the sense that I have not asked myself the question of how I am returning and how I involve all of myself in that. But we know that if we do that, we do this in the hope of the gospel. We do this in the loving character of God who is pouring out upon us. He does this for us that we could let go of our struggle more and more and allow him to take hold of us, to carry us in his mercy and grace. And so for me, it's much more a path of freedom, (laughs) of actually letting go of the things that don't matter and welcoming the things that breathe life into me. So what does a return look like for you? I invite you to pray into that and reflect on that. And even the song the worship team's gonna lead us in carries us into that, how we confess these things completely and follow God in worship and praise. 
Will you pray with me? Lord, I just, I just invite your spirit into our, our hearts. Lord, to bring challenge when there are things within us that needs challenge. And Lord, I pray for our hurting world and I pray the promise that you speak of of a future day when you will bring an end to all pain and suffering. And that is the hope and rescue we arrange our lives around. And as we step more in this process of following you, God, I pray, Lord, you would confirm the decisions we make. I pray that you would lead us towards the right accountability among brothers and sisters and friends. And Lord, I pray that we do this not out of guilt, but we do it motivated by the love and peace you've promised. We do it motivated by the joy that we see in you. The more we can just let go of some of the struggle, the more we find fullness of joy. So Lord, I just pray your love would be upon all of us that your love would lead us towards repentance. And Lord, just set us free to be stronger, brighter witnesses of your love in this world. For that is what you've called us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.